Welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in our environment. I'm your host, Abigail Garfalo. And I'm your co-host, Amy Leveringhouse. And today we are joined by Dwayne Friend, Climate Specialist and Master Naturalist Coordinator with University of Illinois Extension. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You're here to talk to us about a really interesting topic that Amy and I have saw the topic and we were really excited to learn about. And I always try and do some pre-research and there wasn't a ton on it. And so I'm kind of excited to hear. Um, we're here to talk about uh, corn sweats, which um, if y'all haven't heard that before, I'm excited for Dwayne to dive into it. It's, it's kind of a more colloquial term in the Midwest, people, more ag communities. And so um, let's let's hear about it. Dwayne, what is what is corn sweat? Yeah, it makes it sound like it's the plant is is just sweating, doesn't it, when you hear that? Definitely, yeah. Or what I do while I'm walking through a cornfield, right? <laughs> well, and that's actually, yeah, that's exactly where the term comes from, more or less. It's it's not something that's unnatural. I mean, it's something that all plants do uh, when you have that uh, transpiration, that moisture coming up through the plant, and then it, it goes out through openings in the plant leaves. And um, because we have so many acres of corn in the Midwest, uh, and I think it's usually around 90 million acres of corn, you've got a tremendous amount of moisture, especially when they're they're growing really fast and there's plenty of moisture available. You have lots of water being pulled up through that plant and then given off. So then right in those areas close to the ground, you have a tremendous amount of water vapor, the gas formed water, put into the air. So you have that extra added humidity just from those coral plants. And one uh, things are really going well, now this year it's probably not doing quite as much since we are having a, a pretty sizable drought, at least here in Illinois. One plants, corn plants are really going strong. Uh, they can pump up to about 4,000 gallons of water per day per acre into the atmosphere. So. Um, that's a that's a lot of water, and a lot of that water vapor stays close to the ground, so you have that added humidity. And then the other part of that is, well, how does that, where does that come in as far as the sweat part? Well, when you have that added humidity, uh, even though our bodies try to sweat, and the evaporation off our skin is what cools our bodies, when you've got that added water vapor in the air, the ability of our skin to have that moisture removed goes down. And so the, that sweat stays on our skin, our body heats up, and we don't like it because it's uncomfortable. And then in extreme cases, that's when you start getting into issues with uh, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and those kind of things. So uh, that's really where the, the moisture comes from, is just from that transpiration. And then if we also have a lot of soil moisture, we have a lot of evaporation coming off of the soil as well. So the two of those, evapotranspiration, is where we get a lot of that moisture at ground level during the summertime. So it's that high humidity in the air that's really kind of, um, it's not exactly our body giving off the sweat. It's the humidity coming onto us. our skin. Is that kind of what you're talking, is, is that right? Well, it, in, in terms of, I, I think really what they're looking at is, yeah, it's, it's human sweating. Uh, and we're, we're going to we're going to feel like we're sweating more because that sweat isn't being removed from our our bodies. 
Oh, okay. So like, instead, oh, I get what you, you said that earlier, right? Instead of just evaporating off because the humidity in the air, there's not that difference, right? Of the 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 um water level, like the vapor levels on our skin versus exactly. like the air, and so the it's not evaporating off and causing us to just feel drenched in the cornfield, right? Right. And now this year, since we don't have as much soil moisture, um. We're not having as much evaporation, plus we don't have as, as much water going into the plant, so they're not transpiring as much water. So we're not seeing a lot of that type of issue this year simply because of those two things taking place. So we're not getting a lot of, of that extra humidity added into the air this year. Now, if we get some rainfall, yeah, we can still have some, some issues with that. We've still got several weeks yet for that really peak growth season of, of corn, but uh, at this point, we're really not seeing as much of that this year as we would in other years. Mm. So does it normally happen like in July, June, August? Like when are we seeing it most uh, like more most often? It's really going to hit its peak about mid-June through mid-July. That's really when the corn plants are are really going on strong. They're really growing quickly, so they're also transpiring a lot of moisture. Uh, when we get past tasseling, then the, the moisture levels start start going down, the plants start drying out, and you'll see that aspect of it go away. Here in the Midwest, we're known for our humidity, right? Yeah. Uh, that's good or bad, uh, one way or the other. So do these corn sweats affect our, you know, overall weather? Or, you know, is it is it patchy in different areas? How do, how do corn sweats affect our weather here? Well, the big thing is going to be the higher humidity levels. Now, one of the things that that does is um, we see a couple of, of different things. One of the big things is we have higher nighttime temperatures a lot of times because of that added humidity. Okay. And so, you know, if, if you have, uh, if you usually like to open your window at nighttime, mm -hmm. uh, with that added humidity, you're, you're still going to feel uncomfortable because... Even if as, as that temperature goes down a little bit, our relative humidity is going to go up. And so you're, you're not going to really feel comfortable at nighttime because of that. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, it's not a great thing for things like corn to have that higher humidity and those higher nighttime temperatures because they're still maybe not transpiring as much, but they're they're going through cell respiration. So the more of that they do, more of that they do at nighttime, the more energy they use, and so it's not going to be as good for overall yield. Is it really going to destroy the plant? No, but uh, it's just not the best. Oh, because they're not taking in that energy during the day, like they don't have the 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 photosynthesizing isn't occurring. At right. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And does this? Um, how does this differ from a natural vegetation? So there's. You know, like these are large swaths of, of the same plant, of corn, of an agricultural production, um, but a, a natural vegetation like a prairie or something, is that something that we could experience in, in that kind of setting? Well, actually, there's been some studies that have, have tried to compare the two. And um, from the, the studies that I've looked at, what they say is between what corn does and what prairie does, the overall amount is probably about the same. But the timing may be a little bit different. Uh, now, with most warm season prairie, yeah, those things are not probably really going to start going strong until about June. 
July, kind of like with the corn plants, but still that prairie is probably got that evapotranspiration spread out over a little bit longer period than what the corn plants would. So we're probably seeing a little bit more of a spike in that um, humidity level simply because that corn plant is growing so incredibly rapidly during that June and early July time period as opposed to prairie, which is probably going to be stretched out at least a, a maybe a month or two longer. And it's all the same plant like species. So I'm assuming it like it's it's all doing that really high growth rate at the same time versus like a prairie might have some different species going on. Interesting. Now, if it were a does this phenomenon happen with other agricultural crops like where they have these these monocultures um, growing in a field like like beans um, or something or is it just corn? Well, like for soybeans, because you have smaller leaf area on that, you're still having some of that taking place, but it's just not nearly to the extent that the crop plant is because it has a much wider wider leaf area. And like you say, with soybeans, they really do a lot of their growth more in July and August. And um, again, because of that smaller leaf area, they're just not putting off that amount of moisture as opposed to what the corn plants do. I'm always amazed that even looking right now when we're in this drought and looking at corn plants and here where i'm at in central illinois we're probably going to have some corn tossing here in the next week uh and even though the soil is incredibly dry i'm always amazed how resilient the corn plants are these days they just seem to be able to make a crop with almost out of nothing so um if we get a rain here even in the next few days or a week we're still going to get a crop out of out of this where if you'd have talked 40, 50 years ago, uh, things would have been pretty dire. Sure. Yeah, modern agriculture, man, like that's something we're really thankful for that a lot of people's livelihoods aren't as in the balance when we have these these kind of drastic conditions. So that's, that's pretty great. Here in our Illinois landscape, we have agricultural and we have, you know, some non-agricultural kind of um, habitats, I guess, and agricultural mm-hmm. ecosystem. Um, so what effect do these corn sweats and that higher um, humidity um, and the evapotranspiration, what, is that, what kind of effect does it have on our other types of plants and the wildlife and animals that occur within those ecosystems? Well, looking at trying to find some studies on that, and uh, from what I could see, that added humidity really doesn't affect uh, wildlife or native plants uh, nearly as much as it does for domesticated livestock, garden plants, for example, garden, a lot of garden plants, especially tomato plants. We get a lot of calls about tomato plants this time of year because of fungal diseases and those types of things, which can be attributed in part to that added humidity. Um, but it seems like um, native plants, native animals, they're kind of used to that uh, and they can find ways to adapt to it. Uh, so from what studies I've seen, it, it really has affected the natural world nearly as much as it would for things like cows, pigs, chickens, uh, and then garden plants and, and non-native plants. Uh, we see a lot more disease issues, particularly fungal diseases in our plants, those types of plants, which in part can be attributed to the added humidity. And then part of that is just simply due to to increase rainfall in some cases during some years and get that added soil moisture, which also adds to that higher humidity right at ground level. 
Mm, so definitely another reason to consider native. Obviously, grow your crops and and things like that. But those those buggers are resilient. Those those native plants and and wildlife. I have another question, Dwayne. So if I'm living in a town and I drive out to outside of town, like in amongst the corn fields, can you like can you feel a difference? You probably can if you're really close to those corn fields and you're kind of totally enveloped by them. And especially if you are out walking through that corn where you're probably not getting much wind movement, that that water vapor is just gonna hang there. And especially during the summer, we typically don't get uh, a lot of wind. So especially on really calm days, yeah, you can probably really feel that mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being more in a, in a city area. Although, on the other hand, depending on the size of the city, then you can get, you know, for larger cities, um, and Abigail can attest to this, living up in, in your neck of the woods, that urban heat island effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, where all of that heat gets absorbed by the concrete and the asphalt, and then that leads to even higher nighttime temperatures in those areas because that heat's giving off then during the night. Yeah, you can feel a, a visible difference in communities that don't have like parkway trees versus communities that do, um, because that night, like that uh, absorption of heat and in that concrete, and there's no shade from the trees to to prevent that absorption. It's crazy, but as far as uh, this phenomenon. I do have one more question for you, given you're kind of our, our climate specialist. Um, what is there, uh, is climate change affecting this phenomenon in any way? Is, is there kind of an amplifying effect? Well, and just looking at, at whether this has an effect, whether it itself has an effect on climate change, uh, the, the jury's kind of out on that because even though it, it is something that's being added to the atmosphere, other plants would do the same thing. Like we talked earlier, native plants would do the same thing. So, um, we, we are seeing in general, uh, a, an increase in precipitation. We've seen that trend over the last few decades, and we're seeing an increase in the amount of extreme precipitation events, um, where we're getting a lot more of these two, three, four inch, sometimes five inch rainfall events. That cannot be directly attributed to the corn sweats because when you look at, at where the majority of that moisture comes from, and even though that corn is pumping a lot of water vapor into the air, when we really look at the overall amount of moisture that comes from precipitation events, it's coming from the Gulf of Mexico. So we're getting most of that water vapor coming in from the Gulf so the, the corn itself and those plants, while it's adding water vapor into the air, it's not the main culprit for precipitation. The other thing is, again, with those, those nighttime temperatures, now that is adding a little bit to that aspect of it. Um, so we have seen that in trend increase in the Midwest over the last few decades. And then as far as, as um, looking at outside of that, that time frame. Uh, really, just talking about it in, in the, the Midwest, uh, we're seeing in the wintertime, uh, and I think, well, both of you are, are not nearly as old as I am, but <laughs> I can say from experience that our winters are much less harsh than they used to be 30 or 40 years ago. Now, obviously, that can't be attributed to, to corn or, or anything like that, but uh, that's really where one of the big changes in the Midwest is coming from, is our winters have become much less harsh. Winters and then our springs have also gotten slightly warmer. Summer really hasn't changed all that much. And one thing I will mention with 
that added humidity that we have in the air, one of the things that we have not seen is really a big increase in our summertime temperatures, which you might expect. But uh, one of the speculations is that that added humidity kind of moderates temperature because water in general moderates temperatures, takes out the highs, takes out the lows. So that may be one reason that we're not getting these extremely high temperatures. Um, and again, back several decades ago, being in the, the mid to upper 90s was probably a little bit more common than it is today. Uh, and part of that can be attributed potentially to that added humidity. I was going to, I will, with those increased rainfalls too, like, is it possible that we might be seeing longer periods of corn sweats or even like the shift of timing? Like, is this phenomenon changing because of climate change too, possibly? Well, the, that, with that quant plant, that quant plant has got a pretty set timeline based on its growing degree days. So the, the precipitation outside of that window really isn't going to be affected that much. The, the big thing, too, with the heavier precipitation events, the, the two big things with that is you're getting a lot more added runoff. So in terms of soil erosion, huge amounts of soil erosion is occurring. And I can think about just one event about a month or so ago where here in Jacksonville area, we got about an inch and a third of rain in about 20 minutes. And it was right at a time when the plants were really small and those fields that had been tilled, there's a field right by our, our house where right in the rows where the, the field was at and it was planted down straight up and down the slope. There were um, gullies or rills in the field that were probably three or four inches wide and about two inches deep where they just lost in that one rainfall event, thousands of tons of soil that went down to the bottom of the hill. You know, and you can't, you can't do that very many times and not start having a loss in soil production hmm. or soil productivity. Sure. We are um, going to close out on this topic. I know we kind of edged towards climate change, but I was interested to hear, and I, I know that's a lot on a lot of people's minds. So thank you so much, Dwayne, for sharing your knowledge on corn sweats and, the, and this really cool phenomenon of, of plant. Uh, I feel like we learned a lot about how plants work um, in, this, in this particular section, so I appreciate it. So now it's time for a special spotlight, the point of the show where you get to shine a spotlight on something cool you saw in nature this month. Uh, Amy, do you want to get us started? Sure, I can start. This isn't, well, it is something that I saw, but it was an experience that I had. I did get to go to a um, native plant um, conference over here on um, the western side of the state, and I toured probably seven different native gardens and I was out at a CRP forestry site last week or the week before and it was just really encouraging to see the to see folks out there really caring for their land and doing a lot of the hard work um, that it takes to manage you know the resource that you you take care of that these folks took, you know, take care of. Um, so it was just really inspiring um, to see um, people out there um, talking about native plants and doing the work, actually doing the work on their properties. So yeah, that was just, it was just an inspiring, inspiring thing. Awesome. And, and for our audience, Amy, can you clarify what um, a CRP land is? Oh yeah. Well, it was a, it was actually a, a contracted area that 
was in the forestry program through the USDA Conservation Reserve Program. So folks get a government payment for setting aside their previously cropped property and transitioning it into a forested piece of land. So so we were just looking, we were out looking um, to see whether or not they had um, performed some of the practices that were uh, prescribed in their um, contract. So they had done a lot of um, thinning work, timber stand improvement work, and cutting out and managing and getting rid of lots of invasive plants. So it was a lot of lot of work that they had done. So it was very, very inspiring um, that people really are out there wanting to do um, the work and wanting their, you know, ecosystems on their properties to be healthy. So it was good. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Amy, for sharing. I'm going to pass it over to Dwayne. Okay. Well, right after Amy's uh, discussion, I, there's now two things I want to mention here real okay. quick, so I'll try to be brief. But in terms of that conservation reserve program, on our family farm, we've had uh, actually all of our acreage, about 80 acres was the family farm, put into pollinator habitat with the conservation reserve program about six years ago. So um, it took about three years really for it to get well established, but it's just been uh, an amazing experience so far. We have probably about um, six or seven honeybee hives there that we always get honey from. Um, I don't mess with the honeybees. We have someone else. That <laughs> but um, and just to see it, and uh, you know, I always wonder what what my dad would have thought about it. I don't know. It, it it's been in the family farm since the 1850s, so it's oh, been wow. farmed for well over a you know 100 to 150 years. But uh, I, I think, and it's unirrigated sand, so a year like this would not do well for cropping anyway. So I think it's just a wonderful way of of having that oasis of pollinator plants out there uh, for pollinators to use. Now, the thing that I was originally going to talk about, which I'm still going to talk about, and it's not recent, but I just think about always this time of year now. A few years ago, I got to go to Fairbanks at the end of June, and all I can remember or all I think about at first is when I got off the plane and it was about 9 o'clock at night, they had just had a little shower go through, and, of course, up there, 9 o'clock at night, the sun didn't go down until about 1 in the morning. So I was able to walk around, and there was still a shower off in the distance. So there was a rainbow. In fact, at one point, there was a double rainbow that hung in the air for like 30 minutes. So I'm walking around 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. I've got this double rainbow off in the distance. And then the other thing that I remember is um, because of the shower, there was just this super sweet smell in the air that just hung in the air that entire time. And it was just such a fantastic way to start my trip off. Mm -hmm. uh, and I never will forget that. Well, that, that sounds so magical. Like, I feel you're just like, oh, I guess <laughs> it was. It was awesome. the world's telling me something that I, I need to enjoy myself. Right, right. Lovely. Well, I'll go next, um, I guess, on the theme of inspiration. Um, I am um, yesterday I had the the privilege of touring the African American Heritage Water Trail. Uh, it's on the Little Calumet River in uh, Chicago, right near the Indiana border. Uh, and we got to uh, actually go to the water trail and and hear from a historian who talked about how that site was a stop on the Underground Railroad. 
And a lot of people hear about the Underground Railroad being on the East Coast and Harriet Tubman. Um, but this was there. Chicago was actually like a really major spot um, for freedom seekers as well. And so that was just really beautiful to see this land connection. Uh, and then we also got to talk to the ecologist who's restoring the the woodlands around it. So Bobian Woods is is what the site is called. And it was just really neat to hear um, him speak about it. His name's Dan Spencer. He's like a plant nerd, just like all of us, and, and loves to hear about ecology and, and things like that. And so he was talking about the restoration of the site. And he had been approached by one of the community members about this tree that they were about to take down to restore to prairie and and things like that. And and they had asked him not to take down that this particular tree. And it was an elm tree. And after talking to the the um, fellow restorationists and the and the team and stuff, they decided to keep it, which isn't a request they can always honor. And so they were able to keep it. And because it was this this heritage of this of this man, and he actually brings school kids back to it to visit and things like that. And so it really just kind of highlighted to me the connection of the land that um and this site really does a great job at at doing this uh restoration of the land and considering and incorporating humans into that restoration aspect because we are part of that natural landscape and it's and we can't just say this is for nature let's restore it and leave it in its own silo because it's surrounded by communities that have these connections to these landscapes as well and and we should we should enhance that and so they're doing really great work over over at Bovian Woods and and the African American Heritage Trail and um, if you get a chance I really encourage you to go check it out go take a canoe take a kayak just go walk the site they did a bike tour that day too and um, just really really cool piece of history and and um, demonstration of how we can incorporate uh community into our our natural resource efforts so so that's, that's awesome. amazing that's awesome i love that i love that connection to the land you know land isn't just land it does have stories 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 to tell right yeah stories history it means something it's got this connection to people um and it's something that we should honor and honestly it makes our restoration and natural resource efforts more successful when we do incorporate people into this um because they care, you know, like the, there's so many stories about this community actually going out and restoring and caring about it and using it. And, um, you know, sites are cleaner because of that and, and safer. And so, yeah, I really, I really loved the site. It was very, very cool. So just like Dwayne talking about his, you know, family farm from the 1850s. That's just amazing. Thanks. The stories land could tell. Mm-hmm. I love it. This has been another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Check out next month when we talk with Eliana Brown about drought.